Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Hey, welcome to the Hell Has an Exit podcast. I'm your host, Brian Alzate. This show is not affiliated with any specific 12-step program. If you or a loved one is struggling with an addiction, please find a local 12-step meeting. If you believe you may need detox or drug treatment of any kind, please call 888-699-9395 to speak to a specialist. This show is sponsored by United Recovery Project, a state-of-the-art drug and alcohol rehab facility. You can visit our website at unitedrecoveryproject.com. All right, welcome to Hell Has an Exit. I'm your host, Brian Alzate. On this show, we interview a lot of recovering addicts, people who have stories of redemption, people who have stories of, uh, you know, inspirational stories. Tonight, we have Janice T. I know Janice through Rachel B, who was on the podcast before, and she messaged me and was like, you got to get my friend Janice. Oh, my God. And you live in Jacksonville, so this is kind of a drive for me, but uh, see Rachel really highly in my life. Like, I have a lot of respect for her. So when I asked her if she knew anyone else on the podcast and she suggested you, I, you know, was really excited to do this. So welcome, Janice. Thank you. I'm really happy to be here. So I guess I'll just get into the the good stuff, the nitty gritty. Um, yeah. Like you said, my name is Janice. And um, just to give you a little bit of backstory, how I got to where I ended up um, as far as my addiction. Um, growing up, I had, um, my parents were married. They, from a very young age, gave me a very distorted view um, of God. My parents were missionaries. They met out in the mission field. They would travel all over the United States kind of, you know, preaching the Bible and telling people about the Lord. And so God was talked about a lot in my home. Um, however, that was just kind of an outside appearance that they kept up because mm-hmm. behind closed doors, my dad was extremely abusive. Um, as a little kid, I can remember, you know, there being a lot of pictures on the walls and that was because my dad was covering up the holes from throwing my mom's head through them. There was times when I came home and, and I couldn't find my dog and I would walk into the garage and I mean, I don't want to call it a torture chamber, but just the garage was where my dog went when he was bad. But every time I went in there to look for him, he was either hanging by the garage rack by his throat or my dad would stick my cats inside the shop back and then turn it on. Wow. You know, yeah, just really um, cruel, cruel things and some very um, violent uh, behavior that I saw from a very young age, not just with my animals, but towards my mom as well. 
I had a baby brother who was a baby at the time, like, you know, under two years old. So he doesn't really remember a whole lot of it. So I remember um, from a very young age kind of just being the one that was taking care of him, protecting him, because I remember he would cry and I would cry and I would just be holding on to him, you know, while the abuse was going on. My grandmother would come around a lot, you know, because she knew what was happening, but my mom didn't have the courage or the strength to leave my dad. My mom suffers from a lot of mental health issues, um, severe depression. She's never been clinically diagnosed, but her behaviors, and I didn't know this obviously mm-hmm. until later on in life, but a lot of her behaviors are definitely issues with with her mental health that she has no control over, you know, because she's not getting the proper treatment. So um, her and my dad together were just super toxic, just very violent, you know. And and so that was a norm in my household. And I think uh, I was seven when um, my dad, I don't even remember where we were coming back from, but we came came back from somewhere. We came inside the house and I was walking through my house to go to the bathroom. And so like I had to, you know, go through the hallway or cut through the living room, go through the hallway to go to the restroom. And when I went in, I looked down on the floor and I saw a gun there. And I had been taught, you know, in school, don't don't play with guns. You know, mm-hmm. that was all great. And so I just stepped over it, went to the bathroom. But when I came out, I don't know what it was, but for some reason, like the gun looked different to me. It looked like a toy. It didn't look like the same gun I had originally seen. And uh, and so I picked it up and I started playing with it. And my mom saw me playing with it and runs over to me and the gun accidentally goes off and I accidentally shot my mom. No way. Yeah. And oh I, my God. Yeah. And whose gun was this? It was my dad's. Why was it on the floor? He just left it left there. Left it there? Left it there. Not not like on the table, but like on the floor in the middle of the hallway. He oh just my left God. it. And my mom was holding my baby brother in her arms and it it got her in the leg, which was like less than an inch away from hitting my little brother. And of course, my dad, you know, he didn't want to explain to the police. Why the gun was on the floor. Right. While the, so he wouldn't let my mom go to the hospital. and had Oh, to, my God. Yeah. He would not let her go. And he made her sit there in like complete agony, in pain, um, got the bullet out himself. And, and that was it. Thank God it didn't, you know, get infected or anything. And of course, you know, my dad beat the crap out of me for it, even though he was the one who left the gun on the floor. How old were you? I was seven. So after that happened, and I still don't know because I've never asked my mom, like, what was it that gave her the courage to say, like, okay, enough is enough. You know, Mm -hmm. I'm not doing this anymore. But I just remember um, my dad packing up his stuff and leaving. And while there was some grief there, there was also some relief, you know, because I knew I wouldn't have to witness, you know, my dad beating my mom anymore, it just constant arguing. And, and you you were always living like in a state of fear, you know, in, the, in your home. And that's mm-hmm. it's not a good feeling. So my dad left and uh, they went through a divorce and did the, you know, every other weekend timesharing plan and everything. And my grandmother started coming around more and she would come Mondays, Wednesdays and Fridays to take care of my brother so my mom could work because she was now a single parent. My grandmother was a huge constant, probably the only safe, you know, non-toxic role model mm-hmm. that I had. And so I cling to her. And um, I mean, she was like the grandmother that like baked apple pies and like put them mm-hmm. in the, you know, in the windowsill. And and I remember being a kid and I would be getting ready for school and she would take these um, 
she would get like yarn and she would sew a lot and knit stuff and she would get these reindeer or animal heads and you if you squeeze them on the top and the bottom their mouths would open up and yeah. she would put like little candies in there and mm-hmm. i would find them like in my pockets and stuff and i would get and be getting ready for school and and i would find those and it would just bring me like so much joy you know just mm-hmm. like the little things and so this was probably around like i think i was like eight and then when i was nine she got diagnosed with pancreatic cancer which is a very, very violent form of cancer, and it takes people out quick. And this was back in the 90s, so like medicine and like radiation and chemo, you know, it wasn't as advanced as mm-hmm. it is now. And I mean, even today, not a lot of people can survive pancreatic cancer. So she was taken from us pretty quick. That was devastating to me, you know, and, and it was devastating to my mom as well. And for a long, long time, um, I want to say for some years, my mom just kind of mentally checked out even more and she just, you know, wasn't there. Like I would go into her room and like try and talk to her, tell her about my brother and she would just be blank. It was Mm -hmm. like I was talking to the wall. So because she had passed away, there needed to be, you know, somebody to watch us, you know, because my mom, again, she was a single parent, you know, having to work um, as much as she can because she had a mortgage and she had kids to take care of. So she would hire babysitters, you know, and there was this girl in our neighborhood. Her name was Jessica, and my mom had her come over and watch us. I remember, I want to say it was probably about two months into her babysitting us. Mm -hmm. She took me into my bedroom and took her clothes off and then took mine off. And then started touching me. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm, I'm like nine and a, like nine and a half, ten years old or something yeah. like that. And so for a long time that went on, probably for like about a year, you know. And I can remember like this happening to me, being so confused, being so scared, feeling so much shame, you know, so much guilt, thinking it was my fault, so afraid to say something. But I think a child, when something like that happens to them, they can't process what's going on so they start acting out you think your mom ever knew eventually she did yeah Mm -hmm. she did and that's what happened is i started acting out sexually like in public Mm -hmm. you know because i couldn't deal with what was going on you know to my body like my mind couldn't handle it my heart couldn't handle it i was shattered you know and i was angry so when it finally came out in the open of what was happening and i told it was swept under the rug you know no the police weren't called counseling I didn't get none of that. You know, I think today, like, I can say kind of she did the best she could. Mm -hmm. But there's still a lot of, like, hurt and resentment towards that because, you know, I was a kid. And um, but anyway, um, so, yeah, so so that went on and and uh, my trauma was just swept under the rug. And so I just continued to grow more and more and more into this teenager who who hated herself, who hated her body, didn't like the way she felt on the inside because I couldn't deal with what had happened to me. You know, my mom continued to let men just in and out of her life, renting rooms to random men as well, which then opened the door for more, you know, more trauma, more, more molestation, um, rape mm-hmm. numerous times. Yeah. You know, I didn't say anything. And, and this is all before like the age of what, 16? Mm-hmm. Yeah, all before the age of 16. And I didn't say anything based on my experience. 
before. before. You're like, I said something like, before and nothing matter. happened. So it doesn't why matter. would I say something now? Exactly. So I didn't say anything and I just kept it kind of all bottled up inside. But my behaviors and my anger were still, you know, coming out like I would be in school and I would, I would fight. Like I hated men mm-hmm. at this point, you know, and I would just pick on guys at my school and I would like beat the crap out of them pick up like you know the desk and like throw it at them you know (laughs) because I'm trying to like process Mm -hmm. and um deal with this anger and this shame that I'm I'm going through on the inside so I would get put in like in school suspension a lot kicked out of school suspended all of that and then I finally um I just stopped going and so I dropped out at 16 started going to a vocational school to get my GED but uh, I ended up meeting an older guy, and he was 22, and I was 16 years old. And I couldn't believe that he noticed me, that he, you know, wa- was giving me attention. Where'd you meet him at? Um, so I met him through a friend that I actually went to high school with. Mm-hmm. It was his older brother. I was hanging out with Chris, and then he inter- he, he lived with his older brother, Paul. Mm-hmm. And so I went over to hang out with Chris and, and Paul was there. And like, you know, when he came home, I was like, wow, he's really, really cute. But I just, I wouldn't even like look him in the eye, you know? And cause mm-hmm. I was just so, I, I was shy, yeah. you know what I mean? But he liked me. And for the first time, you know, in a long time, like I felt, I felt beautiful. So we started dating and like I said, I was 16 and, and he was going to college in Orlando which is Full Sail University, which is kind of like for digital media and three mm-hmm. graphic arts and all that. So it was a 24-hour school. So like they would have class at like two o'clock in the afternoon and then they would have it again at like three o'clock in the morning. So they were doing like a lot of drugs, oh, well. <laughs> <laughs> you know, just to stay awake. Mm-hmm. So he, you know, I would hang out with him. And, and by this time, like I had experimented, you know, with drinking and smoking pot and doing cocaine and ecstasy was real big back then. You know, mm-hmm. the whole like... Uh, the rave scene was huge. And I mean, I I got high, but like those, I, I would get bored with those drugs. Yeah. It wouldn't, you know what I mean? Like it didn't, it didn't uh, keep my interest at all. So I was with him. We were at one of his really good friend's house and they were passing around like a plate, mm-hmm. you know, with powder on it. And I didn't know what it was. And they were calling it tech. And I don't know how old you, yeah. So that was like, <laughs> that was, <laughs> so that was the, the street slang for heroin back in uh, like oh, the really? late 90s, early 2000s. Tech? Yeah, tech. Okay. Yeah. What is that? What you want to get technical? Oh, I like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's what we called it. You know, I thought it was cocaine. You know yeah. what I mean? And like growing up, um, you know, you, you went to dare in school and they told you, you know, they would have that, like that, that glass picture. Oh, like all the drugs. Yeah, yeah, with like all the drugs in it. And I mean, but like the only thing they really ever said about heroin is just don't do it. Yeah. You know? And so I'm here. I'm with like all these grown people, Mm -hmm. you know, and I wanted them to see, I wanted to belong because I I haven't felt like I've belonged like ever in my life. And um, so I did it and it made me sick to my stomach. But for the first time ever, it was like I was able to deal with everything that was going on inside of me, like all the hurt, all the anger, all the shame just everything. And it was, it was doable now, Mm -hmm. you know? So I, like we did it and I didn't say anything. And, 
but like inside secretly wanting him to say, hey, you want to do that again? You know, like mm-hmm. the next weekend that we hung out or whatever. And it eventually got to that point. So and this is crazy. So this is a 22 year old guy and you're 16 and you do heroin with him. Mm-hmm. That's wild. Yeah. 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 He, uh, yeah, it really is. So eventually it gets to the point where he's sticking needles in my arms, you know, and before my 17th birthday, I'm, I'm, a se- you know, almost 17 year old girl with a heroin addiction mm. and uh, extremely scared to tell my, my family, my parents, you know, obviously my behavior and, and money's missing and, you know, all the, all the traits, all the things that happen that come with addiction um, are going on, but they just, you know, my mom doesn't put two and two together, you know, at all. So we go so hard. He ends up dropping out of college, losing his apartment. He had a really good job working for um, a third-party government that does 3D tutorials for building the Comanche helicopter to, like, teach um, the military. <laughs> wow. Yeah. He So he moves in, and I'm not 18 yet, mm-hmm. and, and he moves into my mom's house, but my mom won't let him, you know, live in my room, so he's got to live in oh, another room in the crazy. house. <laughs> yeah. So he moves in and that, you know, him moving in gave us more money, you know, so of course it got worse. Mm-hmm. And it, it eventually like, it got to a point where I couldn't hide it anymore, you know? And uh, it was right after my 18th birthday that I came clean and told my mom for the first time that I that I had a drug problem. And of course she wanted to sweep it under the rug, you know, just pretend like what I just said to her didn't happen and she wasn't listening to me. And I was asking her for help because I didn't know how to stop. But I think at this point, like, I just didn't want to be sick. I didn't necessarily want to give up getting high because this was my way of, um, you know, of coping and of dealing with everything. But I I didn't want to be sick anymore because this was, you know, a habit that I couldn't maintain or Mm -hmm. afford. Um, Are you IV and heroin at this point? Yes. That's your drug of choice? Yeah. Okay. that's Yeah, that was my drug of choice. So she's, and at this time I still had insurance, you mm-hmm. know, I was still on my mom's insurance. So she sends me down to South Florida to for a, a program. Yeah, for a rehab. And I mean, of course, I didn't, I didn't stay very long. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I did the detox and I was like, I'm, I'm cured. I'm good. Let's go. Yeah. You know, I came back home and I, I started using again and my mom got to a point my dad by by this by this time he like he wants to kill paul you know and and so paul was like i i I can't stay here anymore Mm -hmm. because my dad blamed him for everything you know because i was a 16 year old girl and he's a 22 year old man you know even though i understand addiction is addiction and you just you're not you know thinking clearly and whatever but my dad didn't see that so um so yeah so my mom tells paul you you gotta go you gotta get out he has nowhere to go. Um, so he moves to Seattle, Washington. And I think like him moving was how, you know, we eventually ended up, you know, splitting up because he actually, he he wanted to stop. He didn't want to use anymore, mm-hmm. but I did. So he moves to Seattle and we just kind of, you know, go our separate ways or whatever. And I get into, you know, the life of the street life. And here I am, you know, a young 18, 19 year old, you know, white girl with blonde hair, green eyes and freckles. And, and so, I mean, I, I was like partying all the time, you know, mm-hmm. and I was always around everybody. And, and, and that's, this is in Orlando. Yeah. Yeah. It's in Orlando. Um, like UCF area. Mm-hmm. 
And then I, uh, I met I met a guy, and his his name was Christian, and completely fell in love with this man, you know. And and uh, he was he was amazing, but uh, he smoked crack cocaine, and you know I had never done that before. I was still you know using heroin heavily and consistently, and uh, I wanted to be around him. And and the way I met him was I was hanging out with somebody, and they used heroin, but they also smoked crack. And mm-hmm. so they called, a tr- yeah, they called a drug dealer, and like Christian was riding with the drug dealer. Oh, okay. So in order to get him to come to me, <laughs> I bought crack, <laughs> you know, but I didn't even want to do it. Mm-hmm. So he and I end up, <laughs> so <funny>. yeah, <laughs> I wanted what I wanted. Yeah. So he and I, we end up getting together. Who's your cute friend? Oh, call the crack dealer. Exactly. Come <laughs> okay. That's exactly how it went mm-hmm. down. Um, so he he and I end up like hooking up. And I mean, we were crazy together. Mm-hmm. I it, it was like a modern day Bonnie and Clyde. Like I could look at him and he would know what I was thinking. And, and when I say in this context, it's like us robbing people. Yeah. You know, we would rob people left and right i'm so surprised like like houses or drug dealers or both all all of it yeah and people and people People too walking on the street well no not like walking on the street but i would like post up at a at a gas station Mm -hmm. you know looking like i needed a ride somewhere and And then rob a john or something well i mean it wasn't a john it was just a person somebody yeah just a person and uh like i would go into the store and i would see who's paying with cash and they'll open up their wallet and pull mm-hmm. out, you know, to pay. And I'd be like, Oh, he's got a lot of money on him. And so I would go outside and I would just look at him. And then the guy would come out and I would say, Hey, do you think you could give me a ride somewhere? I I'm stranded here. And I would take them down a dark road. Well, not a dark road, but like a dead end road. A dead end road. And Christian would already be there waiting. Yeah. And he had, you know, a gun and, of course, they would give up their wallet and we would take their keys and mm-hmm. throw them, you know, in the woods somewhere and then take off. Um, so we did that for a long time. I'm shocked we didn't end up getting shot because we 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 actually ran into somebody we, we, we robbed one time. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> what happened? Uh, we just gave them a very scary look thinking, hope, hoping that they would be scared of us. Yeah. And like, no, we were actually driving down the road and we're next to them in traffic. And so... I look to my left and I'm like, Christian, look who it is. And he looks and Christian looks at him and the guy looks and he like goes like, you know, like kind of scared. scared. And and I was like, yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> and so we weren't too nothing worried. Nothing happened, yeah. Yeah, nothing happened. So anyway, so even though like me and Christian, you know, we were, I want to say love, but it, it wasn't, it was just sick. Mm-hmm. You know, it was so sick. And because knowing what love looked like looks like now, that that was not love. Mm-hmm. That was just But at the time you thought it was But at the time yeah, I thought it was, you know? And um I remember he and I we got into a really big fight. And I had left. I had walked away from him and I was walking down a road and I was in front of a neighborhood, like a, a subdivision. And I, I think I had been up for like days. And I had just done like a really big shot of heroin, popped a couple Xanaxes. And the next thing that I remember is waking up in the hospital with like a catheter in me and them telling me you're nine weeks pregnant. And I had Mm. just been in a coma for like three days. I had overdosed. Somebody found me in the ditch Mm. in front of 
the subdivision just, you know, laying there. So I woke up in the hospital and and they told me I'm nine weeks pregnant. And I was devastated, you know, because for one, just had an overdose. Is this baby that's inside of me? Did this OD and all the drugs that I've been doing? Is this, you know, going to hurt the baby? Yeah. Hurt the child. Uh, uh, is it going to be born with, you know, deformities and everything? And and um, so they, they ended up releasing me. I go home. And I'm like, all right, I'm going to get clean. You know, I'm pregnant. I, I care about this baby. I, I want to be a mom. I don't believe in abortion. So I go into my room and all I can think about is getting high. That's all I can think about. And like by this time, you know, I'm still kind of, I'm like, I'm detoxing. And so I remember like just sitting in my room crying because I wanted to use so bad, but I wanted this baby to be okay. And so I remember like, taking out a piece of paper and like I wrote like I couldn't even form words at this point and like I wrote like a prayer down to God asking him to protect this life that's inside of me mm -hmm. because I don't think I can stop and so I took that prayer and I put it in a bible and that was it and then I kind of went off to the races and you know went extremely extremely hard but because I was pregnant my mom marchman acted me which is like a Baker Act mm -hmm. for drug addicts, and forced me into treatment. I'm in, I'm in detox. You know, they got me uh, maintenanced out on methadone because I came in, you know, on on heroin. Mm -hmm. I was in there for like 34 days, and I was I kept waiting to go in front of a judge because they were going to sentence me to treatment. You know, court order me. And um, I remember going to court, and I talked that judge into giving me outpatient. Mm -hmm. Which is crazy because every single person that I had ever seen that had been a pregnant, or whatever, yeah, or pregnant, yeah, especially pregnant, yeah. you know, they're gonna send you to treatment because it's not about you; it's about that unborn child, mm -hmm. you know. And I talked him into giving me outpatient, and I didn't even go back to the detox to get my stuff. I from the courthouse went straight to the dope hole and got high. So there was which I didn't know it at the time, um, there was a warrant out for my arrest for a theft charge that I had done but never got caught for, like, when it happened. Mm -hmm. And I'm getting high, and, and then I get told, like, the police are looking for me. And I, I so I start running. You know, I'm hiding and everything. I get picked up. I get arrested. But this warrant is out of Brevard County, which is kind of like the sister county to Orlando. It's mm -hmm. like Cocoa Beach area. And this was back in 2007. So at this point, not all the jails are dosing women on methadone if they're pregnant. Like now it's completely different. Like mm -hmm. if you come in pregnant, even if you're not on methadone and you're on heroin, they put you on it. Gotcha. Because, because the baby, you know, the baby going through withdrawals that could kill. Of course. Yeah, that could kill the baby. I get arrested in Orange County for the out-of-county warrant. So they're dosing me in the jail, go to Brevard, and they don't. And so because they know I'm going to be withdrawing from methadone, they put me in the medical ward. And, and this by this point, I'm like 24 weeks pregnant, mm -hmm. which is like five months-ish. So I'm in, I'm in the jail, and I'm literally like sitting, I'm, I'm detoxing like crazy. You know, I'm so sick. And I'm just talking to my stomach, <laughs> you know, because uh, I, I honestly felt like I was losing my mind and going crazy. And all of a sudden, I feel like this wetness. Mm -hmm. I'm like, what the hell just happened? And it's like happening, you know, in my pants. Mm -hmm. My water broke. 
and I'm, I'm bleeding. And so I start like beating on the glass, you know, my water just broke, I'm bleeding, something's happening. And so they rush me to Cape Canaveral Hospital. hospital. Yeah, hospital there. And they don't have like a high risk women's pregnancy hospital. So they had to transport me in an ambulance with two COs to or back to Orlando to Winnie Palmer. So I get there and my, and it, and my water had broke. Um, they did uh, a sonogram on the baby just to make sure she was okay. Um, they put me on complete bed rest, put a catheter in me. I couldn't even get up to go to the bathroom. And, you know, one of those belts for the hearts to, to continue to monitor her, her, her. Well, I didn't know it was a girl at the point at this point in time, but monitor uh, her heart rate. I remember just sitting there in the hospital with these two COs, you know, back and forth. I mean, just every day, you know, shift change and everything, completely miserable. And they had said to me, because I had been in, in uh, Brevard for like five or six days before this happened. And they had said to me, do you want us to put you back on methadone? And I was like, no. I'm like, I've already been off of it for six days. Mm-hmm. Don't put me back on it. Because I was incarcerated and because I was being held on a warrant there, anytime an inmate is put into a hospital and is under the you know the jurisdiction and the care of the jail, like they're responsible for the bill. Not only that, but um, they're paying two correctional officers to drive like an hour and a half mm-hmm. every single day, mileage, you know, their time, all that. And they were like, this, this chick is too much. She's costing us too much money. <laughs> yeah. So they had an emergency hearing in front of a judge, and I was ROR'd on my charges. Mm-hmm. And I remember the CO coming from Brevard to Orlando, bringing me my property, bringing me my release papers. And just saying you're done. Yeah. And uncuff me, you know, I was shackled to, by the, um, my legs were shackled to to the hospital bed, uncuff me. And they're like, all right, Miss Tucker, you're free. So I called my mom and I'm like, come get me. And she was like, what do you mean? Come get you. Your, you, your water broke. You, you need to stay there. I was like, no, come get me. And so I signed myself out against medical advice. Were they trying to get you to stay? Like, yeah. Oh yeah. And the doctor came in. And he said, he's like, I'm telling you right now, he's like, if you leave, there is a 90, I can't remember, a 90-something percent chance that your baby will die. Mm-hmm. And I didn't care. I know I wasn't capable of caring. Like the obsession was so intense and so strong and so powerful that I just wanted to go use. And so I left and I went and got high. And are you smoking crack at this point or heroin or both? both. Yeah, whatever. Both. I was doing both. I was I was smoking crack, doing heroin, and I was shooting cocaine. Mm-hmm. So um, I leave, and I think it was probably like not even four days. I start feeling this pain in my stomach. And so I'd never been pregnant before. I'd never had a baby before, so I didn't know it, but it was contractions. Mm-hmm. And, of course, I ignored it for a couple hours because, like, I still wanted to keep getting high, you know? And um, But it got... So bad. I couldn't ignore the the pain anymore. And they were closer and closer and closer. And so uh I I go to the emergency room. They take me in and they tell me I'm having contractions. I'm going into labor. And my first thought, of course, is to give me something for the pain. Mm-hmm. You know? But I have like 
drug addict tolerance yeah. <laughs> well tolerance not only no uh, not just that but i have like you know on on my medical records like med seeking right drug addict, yeah. so they treated me like crap mm-hmm. and that's all that they saw me as even though i was like legitimately in pain mm-hmm. they gave me something for the contractions but it was a non-narcotic mm-hmm. and then they couldn't find a vein in me <laughs> you know so they had to like give me a pick line in my foot they slowed the the contractions down and they put me uh they put me in my room and they just came in and monitored me every now and then and i remember i had gotten to a point like my mom was like i can't i was being a major you know what like mm-hmm. i was just angry and whatever so my mom left she left me there she's like i'm not staying here with you <laughs> And uh, so she left me and I remember like the contractions were really close and I was like, I, I, I think I'm about to have this baby. And so I'm like pushing the button. Yeah. The hospital button, like somebody come in here and help me and they wouldn't come. And then finally somebody came in and I'm sitting there, I'm screaming at them. I'm like, you have to do something. I'm like, this baby is coming. And she's like, no, you're fine. And I was so mad. And so this was a Seventh-day Adventist hospital. And so they still had bathtubs. Mm -hmm. And so I go into the bathtub and I turn on the hot water and I'm just letting like the hot water hit my stomach because Mm -hmm. it hurts. So like the control, like it literally feels like a shredder is in your stomach. So I'm squatting down and I literally like, I go to exhale and I drop my head and I see a foot. Wow. Yeah. Holy shit. (laughs) I see a foot. And so I pull the emergency thing, like when you're in the bathroom and like something happens. And so they're coming in and they're, and I'm yelling at them at at this point, calling them every, you know, cuss. I effing told you I was having this baby. You didn't want to listen to me. And she was breech. So I was supposed to have a C-section, not regular childbirth. So they put me on a stretcher. They're like taking me down to the delivery room. And they're like, you can't push yet. You can't push yet. And like when you're in labor, your body is naturally trying to get this baby out. So they're telling me not to push. I'm like, what do you mean don't push? And it's my body is just pushing. Mm-hmm. And so I finally get back there. The doctor gets there and he's like, he you know puts my legs up and he's like, oh, you got to push. And I'm like, wait, 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 we're supposed to have a C-section. What about epidural? What about numbing medicine? He's like, no, you got to push now. Jeez. So I gave birth to her naturally, mm-hmm. which was... So painful. <laughs> it was so bad. <clears throat> How many weeks was she? Uh, 29. So it's really early, right? Yeah, six, like a little over six months. Mm-hmm. She was a preemie. She was a pound and a half. She was itty bitty. So I remember giving birth and not hearing anything. And again, at this point, like I didn't know if it was a boy or a girl, but in my heart, like I knew, like I already had already named her Kayla. And I was like, is the baby okay? Because I didn't hear, I didn't hear nothing. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking in my head, you know, this is, God's going to punish me. She's going to come out and be brain dead or, you know, something's going to be wrong because I couldn't stay clean. Then I heard her cry and he said, she's perfect. And I just cried. And then after that, uh, they put something in my IV and, you know, I went out and I woke up in my hospital room a couple hours later and my mom was there and she had already been back to see the baby. They put her immediately into the NICU and because she was really tiny and and she wasn't developed enough to where she could hold her own body heat. So they had her under a special lamp and they had like saran wrap on her and she was just this, 
little burrito looking thing. <laughs> and I went back there and I looked at her and um, I just cried, you know? And like that right there with as undeserving as it was, that was God's grace in my life, you know? Because from everything that I did, I didn't deserve to have, I didn't deserve to have a baby, mm-hmm. you know? There's people out there that would love to have a child that would give that baby everything and and um, raise them up in a good way. And and here I am taking advantage of of what God calls, you know, a blessing and a gift. Mm-hmm. So I stayed in the hospital because since she was born with um they knew I was detoxing from methadone. Like they knew that I had come from jail. So there was a DCF case now open. And so to look good on my case, I didn't leave against medical advice again. I stayed until they released me. Because in my mind, I'm like, all right, I'm gonna do good. I'm gonna, I'm gonna be a mom, you know, I'm gonna mm-hmm. love this baby. And but of course that didn't last, you know. As soon as I got out, probably home for about an hour, and I'm out, you know, back doing the same thing, you know, getting high. And um, she was in the NICU for like 96 days because she had to get up to a certain weight before they would release her. And I went and saw her twice. And that's it. You know, my mom went and saw her every single day after work, every single day. You know, I'm I'm grateful. I'm grateful for that, that she did that. What about Christian? Where is he in all this? Getting high too. Just totally yeah. absent. He came, he came twice to mm-hmm. see her. Are you guys using together at this point or just no. No, it's totally no. separate? No, because after, um, so I didn't tell you this. After I found out I was pregnant, I had also found out he had cheated on me mm-hmm. and got somebody else pregnant. So he cheated on you? No. Yeah. <laughs> I'm such a shocker. I know. Uh, yeah, he had cheated Christian, on me. the crackhead. <laughs> wow. Um, and he had gotten her pregnant, and we were like three weeks apart in pregnancy. Wow. Yeah. And so we what had like, dog. yeah, it was, we were going to like live together and raise the babies. And of course, that didn't last or work out. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so no, we we were not together. Um, he came up there like twice, I, once or twice, I can't mm-hmm. remember, to see her. I can't remember when it was, but a, a little bit late, like after I had Kayla, like after I gave birth to her, that girl Emily gave birth to her baby. And that baby was born with deformities, wow. you know, a lot of health issues. And I couldn't believe like that that didn't happen to me. You know, because her and I, like, same thing. Same thing. You, yeah. You know, same thing. And so I was, I remember sitting at my house and I uh, heard the news about Emily's baby. And uh, her the baby's name was Nevaeh. My mom was like, Don't you remember? I'm like, No. And so she, like, and I didn't even know she had seen this because I didn't tell her I put this prayer in this Bible for this baby, mm-hmm. you know, for my daughter. Um, she's like, I found this. And she was like, You know, that's God. God protected her. Uh-huh. And your mom's very religious, right? So she were both of your parents pretty religious. They were missionaries, but if you ask me now, based on what I know about, You're like no way. Well, no, it's there. What they were following, in my opinion, was a cult. A cult. Yeah, it was not Christianity, yeah. like at all. That happened, and, and I continued to use, and you know, I kept getting brought back to like juvenile court. I kept getting arrested, getting, you know, more charges put on me. Um, I would never show up. Like if I was free, I wasn't showing up to court. The only time I would show up to court is if I was incarcerated. Yeah. Yeah. If I was incarcerated, that was the only time I would go. So it finally got to a point where they terminated my rights, you know, which they should have. Mm -hmm. I was piece of crap mom, 
You know, I, I didn't, I wasn't doing anything for her. I still say this and I, I wholeheartedly believe it. Like the best thing that ever happened to me was my daughter got taken from me. And the worst thing that ever happened to me was my daughter got taken from me, you know, and she was adopted by my mom. Now I love my mom and I'm grateful that she adopted her. However, the same woman that raised me is raising my daughter. You're seeing the cycle happen again. Right. And I'm seeing it, you know, now. By this point, I'm probably like 24, 25. But I meet this girl, you know, because I'm in my addiction and like I can only like take care of my habit, you know, by stealing for for so long. And I, I meet this girl. She's in this really pretty dress. Like she's got these nice heels on and she's talking to me and she's flashing all this money. And I'm just like, how do you, what are you doing? How do you do that? She's like, I'm going to take you to meet somebody. And I said, okay. And so she's like, I'm going to take you to meet my daddy. And I'm literally thinking her dad. (laughs) I was so damn green. Like, why do I, you're going to take me to meet your dad? Why? (laughs) How old are you at this time? I was like 25, 26. 25, 26, okay. (laughs) And so she takes me. So I don't know if you guys are familiar with Orlando or not, but like the strip in Orlando is Mm -hmm. I drive an OBT, the trail. Mm -hmm. And so that's where she took me. She took me to the trail. That is where all of like prostitution is. Mm-hmm. This was not a, a prostitution situation. This was a human trafficking situation. So she takes me there and it's this house. It's a, a duplex. And so there's a, a downstairs and an upstairs. So he's got a Puerto Rican girl in there. He's got a black girl in there. He's got a white girl in there. And all of them have kids by him, you know? Wow. Yeah. And so these girls are working for him. And so she brings me in. <laughs> And she's like, Daddy, this is, you know, Janice. She's going to be a part of the team. And I'm I'm like, what is going on? And he just, like, looks me up and down, and he's like, oh, yeah, yeah, we're definitely doing this. So he, like, dresses me up, puts me in some clothes, tells what me. What was this guy like? You mean, like, his physical appearance or Both. his just demeanor? Like, his demeanor, what he looked like? Uh, he was a black guy with gold teeth, typical street hood. Thug. You know, thug, yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. Uh, slinging crack, mm-hmm. selling girls, you know, selling weed, Molly or ecstasy, whatever that that type of you know profile. And he tells me that I'm going to a hotel at eleven o'clock tonight to go meet somebody. And not giving me details, but by this point, I'm I'm starting to pick up. What, yeah, what that he's, he's pimping the girls out. Right, what he's what he's talking about, and I was terrified. And um, I'm on probation at this, you know, at this point too. So we go. He has some guy pick me up, take me. Wrote, the girl comes with me because it was my first time, and I'm like shaking. We go in there, and she goes in there with me, and I couldn't do it. I could not do it. And she was like, "Look, I'm not going to tell him that you couldn't do it because he will beat you." And she's like, "I'll just, I'll just tell him that he didn't want you. He just wanted me." And so I said, "Okay." And so I told him that night when we got back and like, and and the entire ride back, like I'm crying, you know, because I'm scared. I can't leave. I don't know how I'm going to leave. How do, how did I get myself into this? Mm -hmm. And I remember coming home or going back to his house, coming, coming home and telling him, look, I have an appointment with my probation officer tomorrow. I need to go see him. I didn't have one, but this was the only thing I could come up with in my mind. To leave. Yeah. Yeah. And so I go there and I meet with my probation officer and I said, look, I said, you have to go out there and tell them that I tested positive for drugs and that you're arresting me. So that's how scared you were. That's how scared I was. 
And he did that, but he didn't ask me anything after that. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> he you... wasn't like, do you need help? No, <laughs> he was just like, okay. Yeah, I'll just, I'll do that. <laughs> so. Yeah, I don't mean to laugh. It's just, uh, it's it's crazy how like people's lives just become like pieces of paper on people's desk and. Yeah, and just shuffle them on through. Mm-hmm. This this will be extra paperwork for me, so I don't want to deal with this. Yeah. You know, meanwhile, you know, people, this is someone's life, mm-hmm. you know? So they leave. They think I'm going to jail. And I don't, I can't even tell you who I called, but I, I called somebody and they came and picked me up. And I went back to like my area of town because that was like west side of Orlando where they mm-hmm. were at. I was on east side. And oh, wait. So you didn't go to jail? You just told them to tell them that you were going to go yeah, to no, jail? Yeah, no, I didn't go to jail. Okay. Yeah, no. So I didn't. you told the probation officer mm-hmm. to tell them in the parking lot mm-hmm. that she's going to in jail? In the waiting room. In the waiting room? Oh, yeah. my God. And he did it and didn't ask any questions no. why? No. Well, I told him I was I was scared for but, my yeah, life. Yeah, but he never said anything. But he never, he never asked me any questions beyond that, you know? Yeah. So I go home and, of course, you know, back to the races, back to using. Um, I had a couple more encounters with men posing as drug dealers. The ones. But they're pimps or sex traffickers. Right. But they're traffickers. This one guy, his name was uh, Big Lip Chris. He actually got murdered a couple years ago. He had me in his house, and I was so dope sick. And so I was just laying there, and um, he was, you know, holding the fact, like, if you want this, you're going to have to do this. Mm -hmm. I was so sick. And so, of course, you know, I did it, you know. And, and, And like today, you know, working in the anti-trafficking, you know, movement, in order for like the legal definition for human trafficking is force, fraud, and coercion. And, you know, that's under the realm, under the umbrella of, uh, of what he was doing. What does that mean? Force, fraud, and coercion. So force is violent. Fraud is uh, by telling you, you know, I'll provide housing for you or I'll take care of you. Um, coercion is uh, me being a drug addict and... Taking advantage of a situation. Right. Vulnerability. Okay. Yeah, or or run away, mm-hmm. uh, you know. If you don't do this, and I'm I'm not gonna, you know, feed you or you know whatever. So that's the definition of sex trafficking. The, the legal, legal, the legal the definition. definition of yeah, sex trafficking. yeah. It has it has to fall under those. And now, when it comes to minors, it has to be all three of those. No, no, no. Just, just one. one. Okay. Just one. And when it com- when it comes to minors, though, there is no, they're they're automatically victims. Sex tra- okay. Automatically. Yeah. Because there is a difference between prostitution and and human and trafficking. Sex trafficking. Yeah, there's a, there is a difference. You know, there are people out there, okay. um, but not saying. So if a girl says, "Hey, I'll have sex with you for money," and then buys mo- drugs with the money, that's not sex trafficking. That's just prostitution. But if a guy knows that a girl needs money for drugs, and she's like unwillingly wants to do the unwillingly wants to do this, but they kind of force her or intimidate her to do it in exchange for drugs, that would be sex trafficking. Well, no, because if you have somebody who is hooked on drugs, they're doing it for the drugs. Anybody that is deriving or benefiting from the proceeds of somebody selling their body, mm-hmm. that is sex trafficking. That is sex trafficking. It, it's, you got to take that classic pimp and hoe situation mm-hmm. out of your mind because that's not really what it... I mean, that does still happen. Mm-hmm. But that's kind of like the older Old, older days. You know what I mean? Like it's so much more broad now. Like these men are posing as you know, boyfriends that they love you. Oh, if you love me, you know, you'll go and do this. But there is an there is an entire mental 
psychological, emotional manipulation behind it. These men are very, very good at what they do. Mm -hmm. Very good. And when you take somebody who is completely broken and vulnerable and addicted to drugs, and I know for me and the girls that I work with too, I just wanted somebody to rescue me for myself, mm -hmm. you know? And they'll pose as that, but then they'll get you in debt with them. And then they will be your only means for survival. They'll be the only ones taking care of you and the only ones beating you, you know, and breaking you down like psychologically to where you feel like you can't leave. Yeah, your property at that point. Right, you know? And they have you trained. It's almost like Stockholm Syndrome too. And you think that they care about you, mm -hmm. you know? And which is for me, like to even like like tap back into that mindset because of who I am today. And, and I was, a sh you know, wasn't easily manipulated growing up like like that. Just to think that I used to be in that mindset like mm -hmm. blows my mind. Like I, I'd kill somebody today. Yeah. You know what I mean? So back to the story. So you're with Big Lip Chris, was it? Yeah, name? I was okay. with Big Lip Chris and like I was so, 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 so sick. He was telling me, he's like, Well, you know, if you want this, you're gonna you're gonna have to do this, you know? And so I did it. I wasn't with him for very long because I had gotten an infection in my blood. And I had caught a form of MRSA mm -hmm. that was a very rare strand. And I just had sores all over me. And he wouldn't let me go to the hospital. But it got so bad that I wasn't, I couldn't make him any more money. You know, people were looking at me, yeah. you know, like, no, you know. And so by that point, he finally let me go. And, it, and the doctor told me that, like, if you hadn't come, you would have died. You would have you gone septic and you would have died because the poison in my blood was so... And, like, that's where all these sores were coming out because they were... It was the poison trying to come out of my body. Hmm. And so I got away from him because of that because I was in the wow. hospital for, like, eight weeks. So I get out, in and out of jail, you know. I think I, I went to prison once in 2009. You know, I'm, I'm sitting here and I, I got like... 15 possession charges. I got grand thefts, possession of paraphernalias, possession of heroines, possession of cocaine, you know, just constantly in and out of jail, having so much contact with law enforcement, with judges, mm -hmm. with state attorneys, with doctors. What about treatment? You going to treatment a lot or not really? Um, or just jail? Just detoxes, mostly jail. I would go to detox, but just to detox and then boom, mm -hmm. you know, I just need, I just need to need clean, up. I just need to clean yeah. up a little bit, you know, that's it. Yeah. My last encounter was with a guy. Mm -hmm. Um. Well, it's, it's actually started out with a girl. Her name, her name was Carrie and I met her in jail. And um. so we were in the same dorm and then, you know, we both get out of jail. We go our separate ways or whatever. I end up running into her at a bus stop at, by a 7-Eleven. And she, I was looking for a place to stay because the crack house that I was staying at, I didn't want to stay there anymore. And she tells me, she's like, yeah, she's like, we got a room for rent at my house. Come and stay with, you know, come rent the room. It's only $10 a day. It's a nice house. Um, he sells dope, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, word. Sounds like a dream. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> word. Let's do it. <laughs> you know? And so I go and I walk into the house. And this guy comes, he's got a mouthful of golds, you know, tattoos and everything. He introduces himself and he's like, my name's Smurf. Hey, I'm Janice. He was like, what's your, your full legal name? And I'm like, why? And he's like, because if you ever get arrested, I need to be able to get you out of jail. I'm like, okay. Give him my name, shows me the room. I'm like, sweet, you know, sweet setup, drugs right here. 
you know, a roof over my head. I'm, I'm good to go. And then he comes in and he's like, you know, in order to stay here, you got to you got to work for us and you got to buy, you know, buy drugs from us. And I'm like, OK, whatever, because um, I was like doing I had like a whole bunch of sugar daddies like on the side. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? But with him, it had taken a turn for some of the darkest, most evil things that I've ever experienced in my life as far as not just physical abuse from him, but when he was posting me on Backpage, the things that he was promising these people. And so like I'm at this point where I am living in a constant state of fear on high alert at all times. Any like any sudden movements, I'm you know, I'm scared and I, I'm not sleeping. And the only thing I'm doing is using drugs and and I'm needing more drugs just to cope with what's happening to my body and my mind. And I really feel like every time something happened, like a part of me died that I'll never get back, mm-hmm. you know? And that went on for, for too long. And I remember like coming back to the house because he would put us up in hotels and, you know, uh, we would have a door, a guard or whatever you want to call him. We called him a doorman. Um, that would watch us just to make, you know, for our safety, but also to make sure that we didn't you leave. Run off or right. Run. But there was a lot of conditioning too, you know, before it could get to that point. And he. So h- how long are you with this guy? I was with him for a couple months. Okay. I remember coming back to the house and that the, one of the other girls was there. That was Holly. And I have never seen somebody so black and blue. I'm not like even her back was black and blue like he beat her so bad because she tried to leave mm-hmm. that terrified me i remember he he let me get a dog a puppy and besides the lord like i honestly like it's amazing to me how our bodies are made how god has made us to where in our minds we can mentally check out to survive very traumatic situations so like where you are someone who is just being saturated in trauma every single day god even though i i wasn't saved yet i know he was with me mm-hmm. giving me the strength to keep moving forward to you know face another day because eventually you know i would Would be, you pray at that time at all pray for god to just take my life mm-hmm. <laughs> you know because I, I think at this point, I didn't see any other, anything past this. Like, this is what I'll be for the rest of my life. I won't be anything else, you know? So I was like, I'd rather just die. So I'm sure there's people out there that say like, oh, well, these girls want, like, I'm sure people say this with like the trafficking all the time. Like, mm-hmm. oh, well, these girls want to do this stuff or they're not, no one's putting a gun to their head or, you know, they're just going to, how come they go to jail and then go back to doing the same thing, you know? So like. You know, what do you say to like people that are saying things like that? So there is a such thing, and and I think a lot of um, society takes that picture. You know that movie Taken, mm-hmm. where and while that does really happen, yeah. you know people are chained down to a bed in a brothel, being kidnapped and forced and forced like sex dolls. Yeah, right. That does happen. But there's um, a different type of chain that you don't exactly, see. and that is a mental and an emotional um, prison Mm -hmm. that you're in. Like I said earlier, when you have somebody that is your only form of survival from everything, they take away your ability to speak, to think for yourself, when you eat, what you wear, and they beat you down so far to the ground, but yet they're the only one there 
mm-hmm. to give you their hand to pull you up. That form of manipulation and abuse and that type of psychological trauma is debilitating. Yeah, and they're not giving you any portion of the money, right? Because mm-hmm. I, I would always wonder, like, well, how come the girls don't just pocket some of the money? But it's because they're so scared, right? That if they get caught stealing or anything like that, they'll get beat. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, you're told, you know, not to trust the police. Of course, you're conditioned, you know, you're trained. And like I said, these guys are so good at what they do. And you're do. at the weakest point of your life. Right. You, mom and dad probably haven't answered your call in years. Exactly. You have yeah, nobody. nobody they're the only person you have. Mm-hmm. You know, so he let me get a dog. And like, this was so important to me because this was something that loved me and I knew loved me and I loved this dog, right? It was like the only thing that brought me any happiness in such a dark, dark time in my life. What kind of dog? He was a Shih Tzu mix. So his name was (laughs) Oreo. He was black and white. He was so cute. Anyway, so Smurf was sending me on an out call. And I left. And like sometimes I would take my dog with me. I'm not going to lie. You know, mm-hmm. like I, he was small enough to fit in my purse and I'll take mm-hmm. him with me. So I didn't take him this time. When I come back, like every, like I couldn't even go to the bathroom without this dog, like at the door, mm-hmm. you know, just I need you, I need you, I need you, you know? And when I come home, uh, BJ was sitting, he was our doorman. BJ was sitting there and I come home and he, I can't find Oreo. I'm like, where's my dog? You know, normally he's like right right here you you open the door right as soon as i open the door he wasn't there i start looking for him and i look underneath the couch and he is there like shivering shaking and so i'm flipping i'm like what the f happened Mm -hmm. and uh smurf tried to kill my dog i don't know you know what it was he smurf was not home at that moment i went and i grabbed a knife and I told BJ, I was like, if you effing try to stop me from leaving, I'm going to kill you. And I got my dog and I left, you know, because he, he tried to hurt the only thing that I mm-hmm. that I loved. I didn't love myself anymore, you know. It's like John Wick. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's all he had left. That's you know all what I mean? had. It's not about the dog. It's that this dog represents everything else that has been taken from me. Yeah. And um, BJ just looked. And so I just kind of, I grabbed my dog and I backed out of the house with a knife with in my knife. hand. Yeah. <laughs> wow. A week later, uh, Smurf found me, and wow, he found you. Yeah, where? Uh, I was hiding out at a crack, pole, yeah, whatever, crack yeah. house. He found me, brought me back, and then um, two days later, his house gets raided. Did he beat the shit out of you when yeah. he saw you? Yeah, he, yeah, he beat the shit out of me. He, he failed to he, mention that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, he beat the shit out of me. He he actually did a number on the side of my head and like wow. disfigured my ear really bad. And wow. Yeah. They raid the house. I was not at the house when the house was raided. So I get the call. So apparently there had been like a two year long investigation. MBI was watching him for you know, human trafficking and what's drug M- trafficking. What's MBI? Metropolitan Bureau of Investigation. They're kind of like the HT police, but on a federal level. Mm-hmm. So they raid the house. They charge him with uh, racketeering, conspiracy to traffic heroin, conspiracy to traffic cocaine, human trafficking of a minor. There was a minor there? Uh, so not at that house, at but at, house. Enough, at a different house he had. Well, so there was two of them. So we had one working on the west side and one working on the east side. Mm-hmm. So Smurf was on the east side, Man Man was on the west side. Um, but they were all an enterprise. Are these gangs or are these just... 
No. They're just selling drugs and mm-hmm. tricking out girls, mm-hmm. trafficking girls. Yeah. So there was me and 23 girls, other women. How much money do you think each girl was bringing in a day? At least five or 6,000. A day? Mm-hmm. Holy cow. Yeah. You got how many hours a day are you guys working? Like, <laughs> nonstop. Like nonstop. Nonstop. Wow. As long as that phone rings. And it's mainly from Backpage. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Backpage or, you know, regular clients. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but but if you think about that amount of money and you think about how many times that's actually happening to somebody on a daily right now, basis. In a square mile radius from here. Yeah. Well, no, no, no. I'm saying like like the girls, like the, what we oh, were having yeah. to do, like how many times that happened to us in a day, mm-hmm. you know? That does something to you. Yeah. I don't. I don't care who you are. Um, but uh, he gets arrested. I see it on the news. This is a huge, high-profile human trafficking case now out of Orlando. Like the Attorney General Pam Bondi, um, OPD, MBI, the State Attorney's Office. I mean, they're all on the news talking about the arrest of Smurf, aka or Keith Hamlet, aka Smurf, plus Man Man. And then I see my face on the screen too. I was like, oh my gosh! So I'm wanted. For racketeering. Why? Like, how are you not seen as a victim? Like, they don't see that's, the... Gr- that's the thing. That's the thing? I was. I was classified as a victim. And that's the issue. And, and and with what I do today with work, that's what we're trying to get changed. When somebody is a victim, you don't arrest them. Yeah. You know? But the, the state attorney and the police, they want to solidify their cases so much that they want to hold a charge over somebody's head so for they begin to testify. Yeah. They get, you know, their nail in the coffin. And then a lot of times these girls don't stick around. They leave town or whatever so they don't have a witness. Right. So they do that to keep them cooperating. Yeah. But the thing is, is, you know, Florida law, there's charges that you can charge people with that do not require a witness. RICO was one of them. Mm -hmm. So... For people that don't know, can you explain what RICO is? So RICO is, it's it's racketeering. Um, Racketeering is a charge that they used to charge the mob bosses. Yeah, back in the 80s. It's when you pose as a legitimate business. Acting as an enterprise. Yeah, acting as an enterprise. Yeah. You're acting as an enterprise and obtaining money illegally. Mm -hmm. It's like if you have like a tire shop and you're selling cocaine out the back. They would get the mob bosses with it um, for like tax when they couldn't hit them tax with tax evasion. evasion they'd hit yeah, them for racketeering. They would hit them for racketeering. Yeah. So that charge has has come up and and is really big uh, in HT cases now. Mm-hmm. So they hit me with a racketeering. I end up getting arrested, and here I am, you know, sitting. And and since this case is mostly women, um, the jail that I was housed in only had nine pods for women. Now, when you have all these women and you're all on the same case, you have to keep them separated. Mm -hmm. So I was, for the first four months of my incarceration, I was uh, in a cell all by myself. And I was only allowed out. How many months? For four months. Two hours a day. And so it was one man cells, but there was three other of my co-defendants in this. It was the juvenile dorm yeah. that was in there. So we would all get turns, you know, coming out, but we could never be out together. together. Yeah. So the only person I had to talk to was the CO. And she was a Christian. And she would come in and I would talk to her and she would talk to me about the Bible. 
Wow. And she would like tell me stories in the Bible, but like the way she was telling it to mm -hmm. me, it was so, she was like such a good storyteller. And so she would tell me the story and then tell me where that was at in the Bible. And I would go back in my cell and, and I would read, read it. it. Yeah. Oh, wow. Then I started praying and like, you know, I don't think like I was saved at that moment, you know, mm -hmm. but like something was, was starting. starting. Like I was eager to seek Christ and um, wanted to know, like I craved to know him, you know, but I hadn't been granted like repentance or faith or anything like that yet. And the state attorney comes, I was, I was assigned a victim's advocate. She used to come and see me and I'm like best friends with her to this day. The CO? No, the, the, the victim's advocate. Oh, the victim's yeah. advocate. So I was assigned a victim's advocate. Which is what? Can you explain that? So a victim's advocate is just somebody that, because if, if you have like a cop or a prosecutor, they're more concerned with what the they're trying yeah. to do. A victim's advocate is somebody who is there to make sure the rights of the victim are not violated. They're treated with dignity and respect, basically that they don't make the victim do what they don't want to do. They, mm -hmm. We're a voice for them. Gotcha. She comes and sees me and she's like, I'm offering you an opportunity for a brand new life. And at first, you know, I still had that like street mentality. I was like, I'm not snitching, you know, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm not snitching. And, and I said, no. And so my attorney comes and sees me. He's like, look, this guy's going down with or without you. You might as well jump on this bandwagon. And, I, and he was like, they're going to offer you treatment. They're kind of gonna, they're sending me away into kind of like a witness protection thing mm -hmm. uh, out of the state of Florida. I'll get away from Orlando. And I was like, you know what? Fine, I'll do it. So I go to this safe house in rural Alabama, like out in the middle of nowhere. Here I am, this, you know, city girl from Orlando out in the sticks, driving by a piggly wiggly. And I'm like, what is that? <laughs> you know, I'd never seen one of those before in my life. But it was a it was a faith based organization, you mm -hmm. know. So the gospel was preached and Bible study and. Is this Dunklin? No, it was Pell City. Okay. Uh, organization's called the Wellhouse. Mm -hmm. So I was getting treated for my trauma, but I was not getting treated for my addiction. Like we weren't going into twelve step mm -hmm. recovery things or anything like that. And so I was an addict before I was a victim. Um, so I I, I think that piece was missing. And um, the first pass that I had and I went home on, I, I used. And I was back out in active addiction for 42 days. And those 42 days was worse than like the 16 and a half years that I was in active addiction because by this point, I knew there was another well, way. There was I didn't have to live like that anymore. And I was miserable. And when I finally got caught, I was like, thank you, Lord, because I hated. It was like when I was out there and I was back in like the dope holes and the shooting galleries and the crack houses, like I was able to see everybody for what they really were. It was just an evil to me. Mm -hmm. It was like the Lord was giving me to see through spiritual eyes, like just what's what this is really representing and this is not who I am anymore. Mm -hmm. So I go to jail and... um the prosecutor wants to make an example out of me because I'm the first one that screws up her plea deal. <laughs> I get sentenced to 69.45 months in the Department of Corrections, which is like six and a half years. Yeah, It was crazy because like when the judge sentenced me, like I, I know what I heard and I go to prison. I, I have a piece of paper telling me 2022 is when I'm getting out, but I don't believe it, you know? And so I automatically put an appeal in. You know, buy me some time, figure out, because I, I got to figure out something. 
So my first year clean was in prison. And even though I was not, like I wasn't exposed to any 12 step in, mm-hmm. in prison, like I held on to my faith. You and staying I, clean. Yeah, and staying clean. And, and there's probably massive amounts of drugs in prison. Oh my gosh. Yeah, I, yeah, I had my bunkie, not in, like we, fentanyl patches and Suboxone and I mean all that stuff. And I mean, she's nodding out right to the left of me and I'm just like, Lord, if I can't do this in here, I definitely can't do it out there. And so like I just stayed in my Bible. I stayed to myself. And here I am. I like I have like this, you know, I'm not going to do all this time, but I'm still getting these pieces of paper and my date's only moving, <laughs> you know, 10 days a month yeah. or whatever, or 15 days. I can't even remember how, how the gain time works anymore. So uh, I had put an appeal in. And so I had a call out to go to my law clerk. And so I go down there and um, she, I'm talking to her and I'm, I'm telling her, you know, about my case. And I'm, I'm a victim of human trafficking. I, w- I was classified as a victim. The state attorney said in open court, I have the transcripts that I am a victim of human trafficking and I am in prison behind a crime that I committed because I was trafficked. That's mm-hmm. against the law. Mm-hmm. And so we finished talking and this other law clerk like comes up to me and she's like, listen, I wasn't trying to listen in on your conversation. She's like, but can I talk to you? I said, yeah. And so there was um, men who were recruiting from inside the prisons. They were looking up online, typing in random names, looking at people's EOS dates. And when they were like, you know, six months or whatever till they get out. They, they would were, go visit it. They would visit. Them. They would, no, they wouldn't visit them, but they would write them letters, put money on the phone, send them money, say, hey, let me come pick you up. And then they were trafficking them. Wow. I didn't yeah. even think people. That's oh, like yeah. such a like ingenious thing but it's a really sick fucked up thing to do so yeah. they will type in danielle something or that, just whatever, like a, last, like a last name and then look up who's mm-hmm. a female and who looks and good then who has drug charges and who has like trafficking yeah. charges and then write them and then get them that way wow that's fucking yeah. crazy he got busted out of Orlando for doing it his name oh was rick rolls God. he only got three years though he's already out <laughs> but uh so there was like there was posters all over the prison, mm-hmm. you know, warning inmates of human trafficking, what was going on. So there was also an attorney out of a, a law firm that was dedicating his practice to the expungement and the release of women who were victims of human trafficking that are in prison behind being trafficked. Mm-hmm. And so one of the ways that he found clients to help was through the law clerk when people would come in. And so she's like, listen, there's this attorney. Here's a questionnaire. She's like, I want you to go back to your dorm. She's like, there's a lot of really hard questions on it because you have to prove that you're a victim of human trafficking. So you got to talk about a lot of hard things, Mm -hmm. you know, a lot of painful stuff. She's like, "I I want you to fill this out. She's like, take your time. And she's like, and here's his address and mail this to him. So I said, okay, whatever. Thank you. And, um, I go back to my dorm. I like glance over it. And I mean, I'm like, yeah, I'm not doing that right now. Like, I, I can't feel that right now. So I go and I call my dad. And uh, he immediately says, he's like, I've been waiting for your call. He's like, we got to call Tammy, my victim's advocate. Mm-hmm. He's like, she really needs to talk to you. So I said, okay. So we call her on three-way. And she's like, oh my gosh, I was at an HT conference this weekend. I met an attorney. I told him all about you. He wants you to write him. He wants to help attorney. you. And it's the same attorney. That mm-hmm. I had just gotten, you know, news about. Yeah. yeah. So I was like, okay, God, <laughs> it's weird. 
But um, he sets up a, a call with me with classification, and we talk. And um, by this point, so I got sentenced. My case broke in 2015. I got sentenced in 2017. It's almost 2018. So they're finally going to trial like three years later. So there is no reliable witnesses. Everybody's either back on dope or they can't find them or they're not willing to testify. Mm -hmm. And there's a new prosecutor on the case. And uh, so he, my attorney, gets with the prosecutor and says, what about Janice? Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I went into this blind, like they couldn't promise me anything, but by this point, my release date is 2022. I'll take six months. Yeah, of course. I don't care. So um, I go and I got to face my trafficker in open court in front of a jury, tell them what he did to me. And he got sentenced to 25 years in prison. Wow. I mean, I think a little bit of healing happened, you know, when I was able to face him. Were you scared at all, like testifying in court? Of course, I was. I was really scared, but I had my victim's advocate there in the like in the audience or whatever, mm-hmm. and uh, my dad was there too. Like it was empowering, you know, because he had taken any type of ability to speak up for myself, um, to think for myself. It, he had taken that from me, you know. And I'm sure from hundreds of other people. Right. So to be able to look him dead in his eye and say what he did and the things that I saw, you know, and it, even with what I've just told you is just, you know, a small portion yeah, of, course. of what happened. It was empowering. And I think a little, I think I healed a little bit that day, but there was still so much work to be done, mm-hmm. you know? So he goes to prison and they drop my charges and they vacate my sentence completely, which is great. But what now? <laughs> now you have this addiction and yeah. trauma and all this other right. stuff. So what do I do now? I How old are you at this point? I was 34. Okay. Uh, but when did you meet Rachel? 2013. So you met her in 2013 in jail? Yes. And she stayed clean throughout that? Oh, it was 2014. 14? I met her. Sorry. Okay. Yeah. 2014. Yeah. Yes. That's cool. Yeah. I met her in 2014. When did you guys reconnect? Like when did you, when did you know that she was staying clean or doing good or whatever? So I knew she was staying clean because I, I saw her on Facebook. Mm-hmm. Um, and we talked a little bit like right after she got out. Mm-hmm. And so she was, of course, you know, doing the good thing and I wasn't. So what's the point of talking? Yeah. To, you know, we have nothing in common right now. <laughs> Why would I talk to you? <laughs> so uh, so she was doing, yeah, she was doing good. And um, when I got clean this time, I found her mm-hmm. like on Facebook and sent her a friend request and we talked and, you know, we cried and I told her I was clean and she was, you know, just... And I mean, this was like early on in in my recovery. You know, I was still in a program. Yeah. She's actually my inspiration for, well, there's a couple of reasons, but she's one of them for becoming a paralegal. Mm -hmm. That's cool. Yeah. So. um, All right. Back to the story. So you get out of, oh, your charges get dropped. mm -hmm. And then what happens? So I I was like, I need help. I need a program. I got to get out of Orlando. Um, the only thing, the only three requirements are uh, Christ-centered. They take you to meetings and you can smoke <laughs> and I'll go. That's mm-hmm. all. That, those are the only things that I want. At the time, my brother lived in Jacksonville. So I was like, yeah, let's let's do Jacksonville. Because I didn't want to leave Florida because I didn't want to be too far from my family. So I come to Jacksonville 
And this program, um, so it was founded in 2013, but it didn't open its first safe home until 2017, November of 2017. I came April 26th of 2018. So it was a baby. Yeah, brand new program. Brand new program. I was... This is state funded? Mm-mm. It's a nonprofit. Wow. We rely solely on, on donations and it's a 501c3. So, but a beautiful, like, you you think you're like walking into like Martha Stewart's house or something. Mm-hmm. Like it's, you know, it's not like you're state funded where you're in the hood. Yeah. You know, you can buy dope from across the street exactly. type programs. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I'm there. Went through a lot of um, counseling, you know, a lot of trauma counseling. And I mean, there were days that like, I didn't think I was going to make it because I'm wanting to run so bad because I'm finally like opening myself up and like dealing with all of the nasty stuff on the inside that I've been running from for the past like 20 something years. And that was so hard to do it clean, you know, to actually like face those feelings and face that trauma, face that pain, face myself, the things that I did because yeah, I was a victim, but I victimized people too. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And that was hard, man. You know, that was hard, but uh, I stayed and I, I stayed no matter what because I wanted this. Like I, I wanted to, I wanted to stay clean. I wanted, even though I had no idea what that looked like, I wanted a life. You know, I didn't know anything else. Like sit, from 16 years old, I was banging dope, so I had no idea like what it meant to like pay bills and you know have like I, I didn't know anything how to have a bank account, nothing. Mm-hmm. So this was I was like being taught everything from scratch, and like this organization these people like loved me with the love of christ man like when i didn't love myself and they helped me and held my hand through everything and um i've never been surrounded by people like that that you know you i couldn't even look people in the eye when i first got there you know i didn't trust anybody i had no idea like you may tell me you you care about me and you want to help me but I, there you want something and there was nothing like that you know, and they believed in me. I couldn't see how because all I saw myself as is, you know, trash, like damaged goods and, you know, just someone to be abused and taken advantage of and never seen with any worth or value or human dignity. Like I didn't see any of that. And like they saw all that in me. They walked me through some pretty dark times and like I ended up, you know, going to to a 12-step program and getting involved and really active in a church and got baptized, got a sponsor, started working steps. I couldn't do like service work because I didn't have a car, but I would (laughs) attend like subcommittees and participate. So I was a voting member because like I was doing everything my, like my life depended on it because to me it did, Mm -hmm. you know, whatever I had to do to stay clean, I did it. And um, I stayed out of relationships because I mean, I was a, I was toxic, you know, I, I had nothing to offer anybody. And like relationships were always bad for me in the past. And like, I couldn't pick a decent guy, mm-hmm. you know, my picker's broken. <laughs> look exactly. At, look at my, uh, look at, yeah, exactly. <laughs> look at my track record, man. It's horrible. But also, you know, I wanted a strong enough foundation to stand on. So the day that that relationship doesn't work out, I don't crumble Exactly. and I don't go get high over it. So like I started dreaming like okay what do i want to do with my life you know and I let hate- me ask you what was your sponsor like 
Like, what are some, like, characteristics your sponsor had that, like, you were like, this is the girl? So the first sponsor I had, I thought she was all right, but she just wasn't for me. So I broke up with her and mm-hmm. I got uh, I got my sponsor that I have now. And I loved her, her presence, like who she was, um, her, her story, how committed she was to the program, um, her love for the program, and how she was somebody who, like she showed the love of the program to the newcomer. Mm-hmm. You know, she made me feel welcome. And I remember... Like walking up to her, I said, look, this is going to be really crazy, but um, I, I need a sponsor and I want you to sponsor me, but you have to have a background check in order to sponsor me. <laughs> she's like, all right. And I was like, really? You asked her for a background check? Well, no, because oh. our place is a safe house. Oh, gotcha. So, so they do background checks? Yeah. Because wow. the, 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 the location is undisclosed because we have, yeah, like there's still men possibly looking for these wow. girls. So nobody can know where the house is wow. unless you're vetted. Wow. You know what I mean? I didn't even think of that. That's crazy. Yeah. She was like, okay. And I was like, really? And she's like, yeah, of course. Mm-hmm. And she's been my sponsor like ever since. And, you know, I love that woman to death. And <laughs> she was there when I would call because I was going to leave because of the TV. <laughs> you know, like <laughs> yeah. dumb shit, really stupid stuff. I made the decision. I'm like, I'm going to go to college. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm going to go. And I was like, all right, well, what do I want to do? You know, I'm, I'm older. Like, I don't want a degree plan. You know, it's going to take me like five years to graduate to get a bachelor's because I'm, I'm going to have to work. I hate math. What can I do where I don't have to do a whole lot of math classes? <laughs> so I found paralegal studies. Nice. And I literally built my degree plan around how many math classes I would, I would have to take. And also, in a way, I was like, how funny is this and how... Like I got like internal joy from this. I can laugh at you. I'm an ex-convict, an ex-criminal, an ex-drug addict, and I'm studying law. Yeah, you know there you go. that was my haha moments. Mm-hmm. So, um, so yeah, so I did that. Got an amazing opportunity. Um, an attorney with you know I had no employment history. Let me work at his firm part time. Started off. Um, I was going to school. And crazy to me. Well, and they do background checks on you before you apply for jobs? It depends. So it depends. Um, so this was a small firm, so no. no okay. But like big firms with like an HR department, yeah. yes, they will. So I'm, I start working for him and I'm doing probate and guardianship law and uh, learning that. And he eventually asked me to come on full time. And like now I'm like, you know, I'm, I'm killing it. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm a 4.0 GPA in school. I'm making straight A's on the president's list every semester. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm starting to go back into the jails and like help other women and share my story in front of, uh, I served on a panel down in um, Tampa with uh, MBI, Pasco County Sheriff, uh, the state attorney's office, and a whole bunch of uh public defenders and like to talk about human trafficking and the experience that I had with the Mm -hmm. criminal justice system and how it did me justice, but it didn't do me justice. Mm -hmm. You know, um, speaking in front of a whole bunch of uh, pastors in the community, sharing my story, sharing my hope, sharing my redemption in Christ. And that's another thing, like after a while, like my, my hunger and my thirst for the Lord and like for his word, um, grew so much and you know sharing the gospel with people because i think like at the time like when i was when i was being trafficked like you know i wanted to die and and i wanted someone to save me or 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 something but i wasn't thinking about my eternity Mm -hmm. you know and 
me with who I am now, and like it talks about it in the Bible, like we can look outside and God's glory is displayed all around us. Look at all of creation, you know? You look at the trees, you look at the oceans, you know, that's not just some cosmic explosion. That is something that is created by a creator. I know that I know that I know that even though that those things happen to me, like the Lord has turned that around for good because of what I do today. I work with victims. Um, I'm a victim's advocate now. So now you're a victim's advocate? I'm a victim's oh, that's so advocate cool. now. And you're really close with your current, your old uh, victim's advocate? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I love that's Yeah, wow. we're really close. How did so she like get friends. into it? She does it voluntarily. Like she's like, she... She as, just goes street, per, like a regular... Well, so she goes into the jails and wow. screens for trafficking. But was she trafficked herself? Mm -mm. She's just like a good person. <laughs> she loves Christ. Wow. Oh, she she's a super yeah. Christian. Yeah, she loves the Lord. Wow. Um, and, and that's what I do today, you know, and I work for um, amazing organization on the anti-trafficking advocacy. I'm the survivor leader on the Call to Arms Coalition. So right now we're just in Jacksonville, but we're getting ready to bring our model of our program into other states because of what we're doing is working. Like people mm -hmm. are being restored. You know, people are healing, you know, with the model of our program and how we're doing it. I, I bought my first home last November. Congrats. Yeah. About to graduate college. Awesome. With so. a mass, uh, bachelor's? No. So it's going to be, it's an associate's in paralegal okay. studies. And you're a paralegal now still? Well, so right now I'm a national legal advocate. Okay. And I'm a victim's advocate and survivor leader for... Awesome. For an organization here. What, um, like, what do you see now that's going on in human trafficking that is like... Like, how is it still, like, so much work to do? Like, what what are things, like, people should look out for? Like, like way that people are setting up human trafficking, like, these days that you're seeing? So, I would love to see, I guess, advocacy on the demand side. You know, we're constant. And so, we're constantly arresting the victims. Yes, we're arresting the traffickers when we can get to them. But the buyers, mm -hmm. you know? What I would love to see... And this is just my crazy vision. You know, you know how we have like a sex trafficking registry? Mm -hmm. I'd love to see a John registry. Like mm -hmm. you have to register as somebody who has purchased somebody for sex. Not only that, but you have to pay money. And that money that you pay, not only for your supervision, but um, for your fines, goes towards victims and organizations that rescue victims out of trafficking. I want to see harsher punishments. I, I want to see more in, in the porn industry um, because porn fuels trafficking. Mm -hmm. um, dismantling and shutting down Pornhub and all the other sites that promote that. Um, I don't think people understand <sighs> pornography and what it does because it, it gives men an unrealistic view of what sex is. There was a interview, or it was an article uh, that I read, and it was a 18-year-old boy, and he had a 16-year-old girlfriend, and they had, and, and the boyfriend had a, an addiction to porn, mm -hmm. and um, they had sex for the first time, and when she came home, she had bruises and marks around her throat, and so the parents saw it, called the police. She was ashamed to say, I had sex with him, and they arrested him for raping her, but what happened was that's the type of porn that he was watching. And he mm -hmm. thought that that's, that's what was normal, doing. you know? Mm -hmm. So I would want to see something more on the demand side um, with men, letting them actually know, because in their mind, they're only 
seeing and wanting what they want as far as their their desires, right? They have no idea the woman behind that camera and what that lifestyle is actually doing to her mind, body, and spirit, the trauma behind that. You know, there's been a lot of interviews with um, former porn porn stars that will tell you stories. Like, you don't see it on camera. They're, t- they're taking out and cutting out, you know, mm-hmm. the rape, the her crying. I mean, all that. And um, I want to see uh, more survivor-led advocacy. I mean, there's so many, there's so many things. But I, I want people to know that it's not something that happens just overseas. You mm-hmm. know, this is happening where you shop, where you eat, where you go to school, where you work. You know, we're hidden in plain sight. I remember um, one of my girls, and I'll never forget this, and like it resonated with me so much. And it's just like she said, you pass me every day and you don't know. And I can remember like being out in the open and trying to talk to somebody with my eyes, mm-hmm. just begging them, help me. You know, just help me. And um, it's something that you can't ignore. Um, it can happen to anybody. You know, there there is a specific class that are more vulnerable than most, but it can happen to anyone, you know? And don't let it be to where until it happens to someone, to, to someone you love or you that you care about it. You know, education and awareness is key. And that's what we do a lot of. We do a lot of... Um, trainings with you know police and public defenders and i mean anybody who will listen anybody mm-hmm. you know uh well i appreciate you so much you have an amazing story definitely you know impacted me so i appreciate you for coming on the show taking the time to do it you know hopefully people see this and it raises awareness yeah thank you thank you appreciate it all right this show is not affiliated with any specific 12-step program If you or a loved one is struggling with an addiction, please find a local 12-step meeting. If you believe you may need detox or drug treatment of any kind, please call 888-699-9395 to speak to a specialist. The show is sponsored by United Recovery Project, a state-of-the-art drug and alcohol rehab facility. You can visit our website at unitedrecoveryproject.com.